My name is Mark. I'm a priest in training here at the Zen Center. It's just really wonderful. Um, it's wonderful to be here. I have a, a tremendous amount of gratitude just to have this opportunity to speak and the Dharma together and share with you. I'm just really grateful that there's so many wonderful faces in the Zendo, so many wonderful faces on Zoom. And again, just, just thank you. Thank you for showing up today. Thank you for showing up for me today. That's so cool. You showed up for me. Thank you. Um, the topic I'd like to discuss is one that's been, uh, it's been one that's kind of nagging at me. It's been nagging at me at my heart for some time. And it's this question is, what is this Zazen practice of ours? What does it have to do with healing and hope? And are there opportunities for this Zazen practice to create spaces for healing in our lives? Maybe even open up a doorway to hope, to hope. Um, you were here last week. Uh, you might've heard Tim say, quoting one of his teachers, that Zazen is good for nothing. Zazen is good for nothing. Can it be true? Can it be true that both Zazen is good for nothing and, and there's opportunities for healing and opportunities for hope in our practice? And uh, there's probably folks who feel like I do and looking in the wider world that opportunities for healing and hope right now can seem in really short supply, really short supply. And that might not just be in the wider world, but in our own lives sometimes too. Sometimes in our own day-to-day -day experiences, we may feel this ugh, ugh, need for a little healing and a need for a little hope. And that might be because of challenges with family, might be because of mental health or physical health challenges, might be challenges at our jobs, right? Sometimes like, hey, Oh, can I just get some space? Can I just get some space? Is that a, a feeling that resonates with folks in this room at all? Some of you? Some of you? Cool. So what about this healing and hope then? What about this healing and hope then? We often think of um, the Beatles song, uh, Day in the Life, when the narrator says, uh, I read the news today. Oh boy. Oh, oh boy. Oh. Many of you know Esau, right? Esau, very one of the big three uh, poets of Japan. Um, I have a strong, strong heart connection with Esau. We're both, we were both old dads. Esau had his first child at 48. Relative to my peers, I had my first child at 40. So uh, I feel a strong connection with Esau. And Isa had this really, really unfortunate tragedy. Just a uh, moment of big, uh, his oldest daughter, he lost his oldest daughter in a, a drowning incident. And after that loss, Isa wrote what is probably his most famous poem, poem many of you probably know in the shroom, right? It is a world of dew, and yet, and yet. 
it is a world of doom. And yet, and yet. So can it be true then? That as we say, the way is perfect and all pervading. Can it be true that we say this uh, inside each and every one of us, there is an inherent Buddha nature? Can that be true? Can that be true and also be true? The, oh boy, the, oh boy, or the, and yet, and yet. Can we hold those two truths at the same time? Can we make space for those two truths at the same time? And I will tell you from my personal experience, I will say that um, when it comes for, when I have noticed healing show up as an outgrowth of seeds planted in Zazen, these two truths that felt so very real, so very real, such, such a deep place in my body, such a deep place in my body. And holding these true truths of the way is perfect and all pervading, and, and yet, and yet, hasn't been something that's percolated up here. It's been more down in my sides and down in my gut. And these two things have existed at the same time. These two experiences have just existed at the same time. Feelings of anguish and feelings of possibility. Anguish and possibility. And it's there in this space where anguish and possibility can be together, I think we can start uh, having a finger, having a finger pointing us, pointing us to opportunities of healing in this practice of ours. Um, so I wanted to share two opportunities, um, both involved being a dad, of where I saw this space between the difficulty of the emotional experience right there and this possibility this possibility of healing and hope. Um, you know, as a dad, I know, you know, our children are just wonder, wonderful Dharma teachers and our grandkids are wonderful, wonderful Dharma teachers. And I'm not just talking about human kids and grandkids, right? Our furry kids and grandkids are wonderful Dharma teachers. Our feathered Dharma teacher, our kids and grandkids, wonderful teachers. Our scaly kids and grandkids are wonderful teacher. And if, you know, Giro Sisler, that also includes uh, six-legged kids and grad kids and includes eight-legged kids <laughs> and grad kids. But I do want to add that, you know, certainly some people in Zoom or hanging out in the room today for whatever reason, you know, just being around kids might not be a regular part of your life or connecting with kids just isn't, um, just isn't something that um, feels natural to you. And that's totally cool. Um, and I just want to say, I do hope my examples nonetheless offer potentially a little bit of help and support. Um, and I hope what I have to share is uh, maybe add some universality to, to everybody in the room or everyone watching Zoom. So just to start with talking about healing, my daughter, Lucy, um, who many of you have met, she's been running around here. Um, she uh, has been part of our children's program. So I'll tell you a quick story. So um, the Halloween I'm sorry, the Saturday before Halloween, son, uh, Lucy was planning to go to the children's program the next day, and we were having dinner with uh, my aunt. And my wife said to Lucy, she said, you know, Lucy, 
you can uh, wear your Halloween costume tomorrow to um, the children's program. And then in reference to Ted O'Toole, our guiding teacher, Lucy said, what? Ted is going to freak. <laughs> and then my aunt asked Lucy, who's Ted? And she said, oh, he's the man who lives at the Zen Center. <laughs> I thought that was the perfect response. <laughs> so Lucy's arrival was very unexpected and scary. Um, Lucy was born on October 28th. Um, but she decided to show up uh, 14 weeks early on July 22nd. She was born at 26 weeks. So that weekend um, was busy. My wife and I, we, we closed on our house in Columbia Heights that Friday. We moved all our stuff from our duplex in Northeast to our new home that Saturday. And then that Sunday, Lucy showed up. So that morning, uh, when Lucy was born, um, it, you know, we were just expecting a day like any other, right? A day like any other. But my wife, she had this own her own nagging question going. She had her own nagging question. She just didn't feel right. She just didn't feel right. And she kept saying that over and over. I'm just not feeling right. So we called the um, nursing line and the nurse encouraged us just to chill out, you know, just Wait, um, get some rest, wait till the early afternoon. And if you're still not feeling well, come on in. But that this question, this nagging question persisted. This nagging question persisted. And uh, we ended up going to the hospital. So I remember it's very vividly. We were um, driving west on uh, Riverside Avenue in Minneapolis, passing Hard Times Cafe, if you know where that area is. And I looked at the clock radio and it said uh, 12.08. It's at 12.08. And I remember thinking, okay, it's 12.08. We'll have our appointment at 12.30. We'll be back on the road by 1.30. We'll be home by 2. And we didn't end up actually leaving the hospital as a family until 116 days later when my daughter was discharged. So um, my wife, uh, when she gave birth to um, Lucy, she was, it was a surgery. So I wasn't there. I was chilling out in a small little waiting room. Just waiting, just waiting, just waiting. And this was like quiet of being in this room. The quiet of this being in this room was a deeper, deeper quiet than I ever experienced. A deeper, deeper quiet than I've ever experienced. And then these nurses kind of came in, pushing this little like weird, I've never seen anything like it. It was like this weird bubble thing, this weird bubble thing on a cart. And they said, you're a father, you're a father. And I looked inside this little bubble thing and there was the smallest human being I've ever seen. The smallest human being I've ever seen. And this bubble thing was a nice little which a lot of times preemies stay in while they're um, gaining weight and growing. And then they left and it was just me, just me and this tiny, smallest thing I've ever seen. 2.1 pounds, so tiny, so small but had these eyes, had these eyes that were wide just looking at me, just looking at me. And, you know, I was too overwhelmed to even put two thoughts together, right? I was too overwhelmed to put two thoughts together. So in this room that shared in that same silence, in this room were so quiet, somehow yet felt so big, felt so big. And in the tumult of that experience, I felt vulnerable, 
I felt fragile. And my newborn daughter there, my newborn daughter, she seemed just as fragile and vulnerable to me. But there was this connection, right? A heart connection so strong. A heart connection so strong. And looking back on the experience, I'm reminded of um, one of our koans that we talk about a lot, that we return to a lot um, here at the Zen Center. And it's uh, the one that's on your program, on your bulletin. So you can read along with me. We put it in the chat too, so you folks hanging out with Zoom can read it. But this is from Case 20 from the Book of Equanimity. Famously ends with the line, not knowing is the most intimate. So maybe just by a show of hands, how many people have heard this before? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. A lot of folks. Good. You know what I'm talking about then? Maybe we just wrap it up. <laughs> Go deep. So, not knowing is the most intimate. Co the koan reads, Dai Zhang asked Fayan, where are you going? Fayan answered, I'm on a pilgrimage following the wind. Dai Zhang then asked, what are you on pilgrimage for? Fayan replied, I don't know. Dai Zhang said, not knowing is the most intimate. You know, as I said, we spend a lot of time talking about that line, not knowing is the most intimate, right? Gratefully so. What a teaching. What a teaching. Not knowing is the most intimate. What I'd like to do is just chill out with Fion, though, for a little bit. I love this. I love this Fion's response. I'm on a pilgrimage following the wind. Where, uh, what are you on pilgrimage for? I don't know. Pilgrimage following the wind. What do you think? What do you think? Should we go together? Should we go together right now? Pilgrimage following on the wind. I'm game. I'm game. I'm game, Zoom friends. We'll, we'll make it a virtual as well as in-person experience. And I think, you know, sometimes um, following the wind can feel really good, right? Following the wind can feel really good. Like when I first read this line, I'm on a pilgrimage following the wind. It was like an ease. An ease came over me, you know? I think we've all experienced that ease of just being with a light breeze on a spring day. Ease of a light breeze on a spring day. But sometimes following the wind can be really hard, right? Sometimes we might feel like we need to hold our coat shut Hold on to our hat. That wind comes at us. But that wind comes at us. We might have an umbrella, you know, and then your umbrella does that thing where it sort of like pops inside out, right? Pops inside out. And we're stuck there. Stuck there. Just in the wind. And sometimes we might just feel like a leaf, right? Like a leaf against the wind, right? We might find ourselves times like a leaf against the wind. But what about this pilgrimage? What about this pilgrimage? Regardless if it's that soft breeze or we're feeling like a leaf against this, the wind, does the pilgrimage continue? I've been just reflecting on this koan and reflecting on what does that word pilgrimage mean to me? What does that word pilgrimage mean to me? Well, I think it's something really special, something worth honoring, something worth upholding, 
something that is worth recognizing reaches down inside us to someplace deep. And when our pilgrimages don't necessarily have a destination, then everything becomes just that. Every step becomes just that. Every opportunity becomes just that. An opportunity to steep in this special moment here. Steep in this experience here that is worth honoring, that is worth upholding. Steep in this experience here that's worth recognizing, resonates with this heart here on a deep, deep way. And when I was with Lucy when she first born, me, that um, vulnerable, fragile being, and Lucy, that vulnerable, fragile being, it did feel like all those things. It felt like that, my definition of a pilgrimage. It felt like my definition of pilgrimage. And I think, again, when our practices points us towards healing, I think this is a place we can start. When we're on that pilgrimage against the wind, when we're on that pilgrimage feeling like a leaf being tossed up here and there, can we acknowledge that? And yet here, there's something worth upholding. And yet here, there is something worth honoring. And certainly with me and my daughter, that was really apparent. That was really apparent, really obvious. Like this connection between a dad and his newborn preemie daughter, that's really obvious, really obvious. I want to tell you a story about how my grandparents met. They um, were from a small town in South Dakota. My grandma was visiting her aunt. And uh, she was at home and her aunt had this cat, right? She had this cat and uh, the cat snuck out the front door and went running away. And my grandma was frantic. My grandma was frantic. She went running after this. She went running after this cat and this cat ran up a tree. And she couldn't get it down. This cat was stuck, right? This cat was stuck in that moment. And my grandma was stuck in that moment. You know, so two beings together stuck in a moment. Right. I know what that's like. I've been there. Two beings together stuck in a moment. My grandpa saw what was going on. So he walked on over, um, asked my grandma if she needed help. He said, yes, my grandma, my grandpa got this cat, got this cat out of the street. Right. And then a few years later, in 1944, my grandparents were married. They ended up having 12 kids. Oh, I'm sorry. It's six kids, 12 grandkids. One of me. I'm one of them. And just three weeks ago, my daughter, who lives on the other side of the lake here, she gave birth to her first kiddo. She, she had a son, Cal and Joel. That's my grandparents' 25th, 25th great-grandchild. All because of this cat. All because of this cat. Going on his own pilgrimage. Going on following his own wind. Up a tree. Up a tree, right? And I, me, I wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for this silly cat. Right. It wasn't for the silly cat. We wouldn't be sharing at this particular moment in this particular way. The cat's here with us. Connection. Connection. Is that possible? Is that possible that that cat is really here? Well, I will tell you where it felt possible was when I was with Lucy on that morning of her, that um, afternoon of her birth. That cat definitely felt there with me. Right. My grandparents felt there with me. My dad, who passed away in 2006, felt there with me. The wide space in that room, right? A wide space that somehow could put its arms around everything. We're all there with me in that moment. 
were all there with me in that moment. Here's another. I feel like I've brought in a greatest hits of um, Zen quotes. Here's another greatest hit. So we had uh, Dai Jing and Fei Yan. That was our version of I Want to Hold Your Hand. <laughs> now we're moving to Suzuki Roshi. And this, this is sort of either Hey Jude or Let It Be. I'm not sure. Maybe we could discuss it afterwards. I have to tell you, just pause for a moment. So I'm 45. I just started listening to the Beatles. And it turns out they're really good. <laughs> It's just astonishing. They're so good. All right. So this is from Zen Mind. Beginner's Mind. I'm sure another line a lot of you know. Or I should say I um, edit this slightly for brevity. So it's not exactly the way it shows in the book. But I hope the spirit's still there. Our body and mind are both two and one and not two and one. Our body and mind are both two and one, and not two and one. Is that a line familiar to some of you? Some of you? Yeah. So with Lucy, with that cat, in that silence, and that expansiveness, two and one really made a lot of sense. Two and one made a lot of sense to me, right? But that's not two and not one. What's that all about? What's that all about? Two and not two and not one. What is that all about? And it's here when I, again, think of what Tim said last week, that Zazen is, is worthless. I can't remember the exact phrasing. Zazen is worthless, isn't worth anything, sorry. When Tim said Zazen isn't worth anything and Zazen can offer spaces of healing and hope, it's in this not two and not one where those two come together in a space of deep, deep communion. They don't just coexist. They're interrelated in a state of being where nothing can be separated. Zazen is good for nothing. And Zazen can create space for healing and hope are interrelated where you can't make space for anything else, mm -hmm. anything to fit in between them. So uh, why is that the case, right? Why is that the case? So when I was um, when I was a uh, couple days after Lucy was born, my wife was uh, in her hospital bed and I was standing beside her and there was a doctor on the other side of the bed talking to my wife. And these, you know, at the U of M, all these doctors, they're all residents. So they're so young, but they're so good. They're so young and they're so good. And they really inspire me. They really inspire me. And I kind of feel that way sometimes when I see young people around here. It's just as inspiring, maybe in a different way, but just as inspiring to me. So this doctor said this thing to me that, or said the, something to my spouse that I felt was a great um not two, not one teaching. The um, doctor said, you get to feel all the feelings. You get to feel all the feelings. The joy, the anticipation, the excitement of being a mom, the frustration, anger with the circumstances, the confusion, the fear. You can feel them all. You can feel them all. And in response, my wife, she just started crying and laughing at the same time. This, this, um, resident gave my wife this wonderful permission 
this wonderful permission to be open to it all, right? Open it all. And in that permission came a release of both joy and both sadness. Both joy and sadness. This tough stuff that comes up, the tough stuff we can face, right? We can see it in its totality as it comes up and falls away. We can be with it. We can feel it in our bodies. And maybe even we can recognize it as part of that pilgrimage, part of that our pilgrimage following the way. But we also can understand that none of it is really us, right? This bevy of emotions are rising and falling away. None of it's really us, right? Um, and here's Genjo Koan. Here's Genjo Koan. Well, Genjo Koan is so healing to me for this reason. And we can experience our lives at everything that it is, right? We can experience our lives and everything it is. But that story we all so often put over that, that story that can kind of get, get us stuck, we can experience that too. We can experience that too. And we can get stuck in it. Uh, or we don't have to get stuck in it. We don't have to get stuck in it. Right? And we can always also just take our arms and go, none of it is really anything. None of it is really anything. All that really is, is this experience opening this heart right here. So again, Joe Cohen has that famous phrase. Oh, here's another famous teaching. This one will be... Um, did we do I want it? this one is going to be um I'll figure it out later I should have thought of this beforehand so I'm just new to the Beatles I just don't know their kits yet so again Joe Cohen goes to study the way is to study the self to study the self is to forget the self and to forget the self is to realize uh, the myriad of things or to realize the totality of all things that wide arm breaks realize that wide arm embrace right so um and I think this is kind of a, a teaching that this brethren was offering my spouse at that time. You know, you can feel all the feelings. It's the teaching of Kendra Kalan. Study this way. Uh, is to study this self here coming up in this bevy of activity. Uh, that is the universe working through us at the moment and us working through the universe at the moment. Right. And in that study, in that study, the stories and the tapes and the things that we tell ourselves that make sense of these emotions, we just let them Quiet down, quiet down. And that quieting down, there's a forgetting. They're forgetting, right? A forgetting there's a doorway to something much bigger, right? And also much more intimate, right? Which Daijong's talking about this self forgetting, this not knowing, right? It's a doorway to something impenetrably, impenetrably much more intimate, much more intimate this experience right here, this experience right here, and opening up to this experience right here, uh, and this, um, under this wide embrace of our arms, and this realization of this teachings of not one, not two, and one and two teachings of the study of the self is to forget the self. They said earlier, I find inherently, inherently healing, inherently healing. Does that make sense to folks at all? Do people connect with that? Some of you? Well, I just want to share one more story, and I'm noticing the time, and I really, really want to hear what you all are thinking and have to say or might have, want to share. Sometimes when you give these talks, I think the discussions are always the funnest part, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to your thoughts. So my um, Lucy's five now. Uh, she's doing very good. She hit all, She's hit a lot of her mind, milestones. She still has some challenges around 
hyperactivity and paying attention and some learning challenges. As a five-year-old, her preoccupations are mainly, when can I get the next, when's my next opportunity to have the iPad? When is, uh, how can I uh, not eat my dinner yet still somehow get dessert? <laughs> and then, um, you know, she just has, she has a new cousin, which is very intriguing. So exactly where her new cousin came from is something uh, that she's very interested in. She asked me a week or so ago, she asked me, Dad, how did Auntie Beth get Callan made? Dad, how did Auntie Beth get Callan made? And I just said, well, Lucy, it's a really complicated question. And the answer is basically, it was the storks. The storks did it. And I moved on. Hopefully I'll do better next time. Maybe some of you have had uh, kids can, or have older kids can give me some tips. So, um, yeah, so I guess where I talked about where I found healing and like now I'd like to mention a little bit about where I found hope in this practice. Uh, so Lucy just started kindergarten and um, it's my job to drop her, drop her off at school. And the school year started really, really rough. It was a huge challenge. It was a challenge for me and it was a challenge for Lucy. Um, so at Lucy's school, there is sort of some exterior front doors. You walk into those exterior doors and there's like a vestibule. And then there's front doors that go into the school. And there's a white line kind of two-thirds into this vestibule where it says uh, students and staff only behind this point. And you have to walk Lucy into the school, but can't go beyond that white that white line and walk her in actually into the interior of the school. And every day I would drop her off and Lucy couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. She couldn't go over that white line. She couldn't walk into the school on her own. It was too much for her. So she would grab a hold of me tight to cry and sob. I would stand there wanting to cry and sob too because I felt so bad for Lucy and there was nothing I could do, nothing I could say. I couldn't coach her through it. I couldn't coach her through it. Just words, I was at like a complete loss for any series of words to string together to make improve this situation. And this happened um, morning after morning after morning for a couple of weeks. And I got to the point where I didn't even, I didn't really... Uh, started to get afraid, afraid of dropping her off at school. Even right at first thing in the morning, I started worrying about it. But of course, just over time, the idea of crossing that line, going to and through that door, um, Lucy became a little bit more comfortable with it, right? And then the day came where I walked her up to the white line and she walked through on her own for the first time. And I was so proud. I was so proud. And then it became no big deal. Became no, no big deal. Lucy um, really likes Bugs Bunny, and she likes to talk like Bugs Bunny. So one time I dropped her off, and she opened the door and then looked at me, back at me, and said, "Nah, get out of here." <laughs> so, um, and now of course I drop her off, and it's like she doesn't even look at me. She just runs right through school and says, "Bye, Dad." This really amazing thing happened one morning. Just it was right before Thanksgiving, and Lucy was at a point when she was feeling very comfortable, very comfortable entering school on her own. And um, one of her little friends in her class, Henry, was having a tough day. He was with his mom crying, with his mom crying, and he didn't want to go into the school, didn't want to cross through those exterior doors, didn't want to cross that white line, didn't want to walk into that school. And Lucy saw what, what was happening, and she walked over to him and she started rubbing his back. 
just like we do when Lucy's upset, right? Rubbing his back. And she reached over and gave Henry a big hug. And she took Henry's hand and the two walked into school together. Two walked into school together. And they thought, isn't that our Bodhisattva vows? Isn't that our Bodhisattva vows? We face challenges. We find ways that we can both be with that challenge and then also maybe do something different. Take our own step across that threshold, right? And then we don't just stay on the other side. We don't just stay on the other side. We find others who need help, right? And we help them, bring them from that one shore to the other shore. Help bring them from one shore to the other shore. And that's hope to me. Wow, that's a lot of hope to me. So uh, the hope that I find in our Bodhisattva vows isn't necessarily a hope that exists in a far-off time or a far-off place, but that's a hope that's just a natural extension of our practice right here and right now. A natural extension of our practice right here, right now. So just imagine that. Just imagine that. Beings are numberless, bowing to free them. Hope. Hope. Delusions are exhaustible. I'm bowing to extinguish them. Here's hope. Here's hope. Dharma gates are bound, bowing to enter them. Hope, hope, hope. Buddha's way, Buddha's way is unsurpassable. And we vow to become it. You know, we vow to become it. After seeing Lucy and Henry there, a couple of magnificent Buddhas weren't there. Just like right now, in this room, there's a whole bunch of magnificent Buddhas. One, one magnificent Buddha after the other, all in different disguises. And online virtually, somehow, somehow, one magnificent Buddha after the other, all in different disguises. All in different disguises. So just uh, flashing back for a moment to the hospital when Lucy was born after my mom got there and Lucy, her crin was still in surgery. I hadn't um, I was sitting like in a little family waiting room area they have. My mom was sitting next to me. And uh, Return of the Jedi was playing on TV. And I, you know, I am a generation actor. So I've seen that movie about 10,000 times. And it means a lot to me. So being able to watch uh, Return of the Jedi in that moment was just like, oh, warm blanket right here. <laughs> warm blanket right here. It's the first movie I really remember seeing in the theater. Um, but isn't it strange to think? You know, isn't it strange to think that it was possible? In 1981, 1982, they're making Return of the Jedi. There's artists, there's visual effects folks, there's people doing makeup, putting puppets together and creating this, uh, this movie. Could any of them possibly know? Could any of them possibly know that a moment in time, moment in time, some decades later, what they made would be comforting someone? would be comforting someone in a hospital. Is it possible that they could have known that? Right? That was their pilgrimage on the wind. It was just to be present and make return of freaking Jedi. That was their pilgrimage on the wind. Just like that cat, his pilgrimage on the wind was to run up that tree. My grandma's pilgrimage on the wind was to go and help and my or run after the cat. And my grandpa's pilgrimage on the wind was to stop and help. We're all on a pilgrimage on the wind right now. Who knows what the outcome will be? Who knows what the outcome will be? Right? Who knows what's possible? 
just by living these bodhisattva vows in the most simple way right here. The most simple way right here. Who knows what's possible? Who knows what's possible? So, um, the Heart Sutra. We start, we chant the Heart Sutra uh, every morning here. I think Ben might have taken the group through the Heart Sutra a couple Sundays ago. But um, it starts with this passage that reads, Abhuli Kiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajna Paramita, clearly saw that all fag aggregates were empty and thus relieved all suffering, right? Thus relieved all suffering. Not just his suffering, not just the suffering of others, all suffering. I'll read that again. Excuse me. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajna Paramita, clearly saw that all five regrets, aggregates are empty and thus relieved all suffering. Could that be possible? Could that be possible? So for those of you who might be new to the Heart Sutra, this, this passage, when deeply practicing Prajna Paramita, clearly saw that all five regrets are empty. That might seem a little confusing, but if I... We're going to put it a different way that might make it more clear. I just returned to Suzuki Roshi, right? Suzuki Roshi. Our body and mind are one and two and not one, not two. That's practicing Prajna Paramita and clearly seeing all five aggregates are empty. So if we do this, do we really relieve all suffering? Maybe we, maybe we do, maybe we don't, maybe we don't know. But it could be possible. It could be possible, right? And probably the truth of the matter is most likely in what I've heard my teachers say in the past, like Zazen is good for nothing. Or uh, to study the way is to study the self and to study the self is to forget the self or not knowing is the most intimate. Not knowing is the most intimate. So we want to enter into that possibility with our full being, right? Fully take on this pilgrimage, following the wind, we got great instruction right here. Got great instruction. Not knowing is the most intimate. Man, okay. I just wanted to end with one um, one passage from Dogen. Return to Dogen again. Um, really, a personal one to me. This one is really. I've been. I found a lot of comfort in. I found healing in and open. I've been. Um, I underlined a bunch of passages from the Universal recommend Recommendations for Zazen, or Fukan Zazengi, if anybody's familiar with that. I underlined a bunch of passages. And when I'm feeling kind of um, feeling like I'm in a challenging time, I've been bringing them out and reading them. It's been really helpful. It's been really helpful. So here's the passage I'd like to end with. So once the heart is, once the heart cracked, I'm sorry. Once the heart of practice is grasped, you are like a dragon gaining the water, like a tiger settling into the mountains. For you must know that there in Zazen, the true Dharma is manifesting. Read that again. Once the heart of practice is grasped, you are like a dragon gaining the water, like a tiger settling into the mountains. For you must know that just there in Zazen, the true Dharma is manifesting itself.
So who is this dragon gaining the water? It's us. We're the dragon gaining the water. You know? so the dragon uh, myth, myths are rooted in the archetype of the serpents. The serpent in a lot of parts of the world, serpents are venerated. And for one reason, and serpents are seen as something really special is because they have this ability to shed their skin, right? They have this ability to change and transform, right? And of course, in our practice, our version of changing and transforming is just a homecoming, just a homecoming to our true nature right here. We can shed this skin of habitual energy that seems to propel us from day to day. We can shed this skin of conditioning uh, uh, from our the cultures where we were born, from our family of origins, from our communities. And we can even maybe shed these the skin, that's this lessons that some of us might have learned when we were kids that don't necessarily seem to serve us anymore. And shed that skin too and just be here. Just be here to uh, settling into our true nature. And then, you know, he also says we're like a tiger settling into a mountain. Who is this mountain? Who is this mountain? Where are the mountain? This Zazen posture is us. Is us. The mountain being settled into. The Zazen posture is the mountain being settled into. Where we're connected to this firm grounding at the bottom. Right? With firm support right here. And at the top, we touch a much wider sky. We touch a, a groundless sky. So we're both at the same time grounded and groundless as we are this mountain in which the tiger settles into. Okay. We're making good time. This is great. Why don't we transition? Um, thank you again so much, everyone. It was just a absolute um, joy to have the opportunity just to share a little bit about me and my family and share some of my thoughts on this Dharma stuff. Um, and I'm just really grateful, grateful everyone hung in there with me, either here in person or uh, all these folks online. So why don't we do this? As I said, I'd love to hear what folks are thinking. If you have a comment you'd like to offer to the group or a question that came up for you, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Maybe we could start with our friends online here. And if anybody wants to either unmute themselves or ask a question or raise their hand virtually, feel free. Oh, Ellen. Ellen has a question. Oh, I think you're on mute still, Ellen. Sorry. I, I, I just wanted to uh, thank you for your talk. I found it really helpful. Mm -hmm. And um, how much I appreciate practicing with you. Yeah. And and yeah, and I, I'm a huge Beatle fan. And my <laughs> favorite lyric is, all you need is love. <laughs> Ellen, maybe... Email me some good like Beatles song suggestions to give me the more deep cuts to get keep me going in my exploration. Oh yeah, well you know you can't go wrong no matter what you pick, as far mm -hmm. as I can tell. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you, Ellen. So good to see you. How about you, Judy? Oh, Mark, thank you so much for this talk. I have never heard you speak before, and I I just feel so connected to you. Um. 
to be able to talk about Dharma in a way that touches my life, that is, that is the thing that helps me the most. Um, some of this stuff can be so intellectual, um, but Zen is immediate and real. And you really hit it for me today. And I just thank you so much. Well, that means a lot coming from you. Thank you so much. Paul, did you have anything, something you want to share? Um, just curious as a guy who doesn't have kids, how do you feel that you've changed from as compared to when you didn't have kids? Oh, that's such a good question, man. Paul, that is such a good question. Thank you for asking that. Um, you know, I think that I will tell you this. So what first comes to mind? Well, when I didn't have kids, I was able to practice for a really long time. And I think the immediacy of being in this building and in this space was profoundly transformative. Um, and now I don't necessarily have it. And I really miss it. I really miss getting to be here much, much more. Um, so I think in a weird way, I think that if the, the transformative experience of being a dad, if I had to point to one thing that was transformative beforehand, it was being in this room, being with Sangha members, really getting to know Sangha members and being able to laugh and joke around over tea, um, having a deep relationships with my peers as priests in training, having an um, amazing teacher like Ted to hang out with mm -hmm. a little bit more often. Yeah, so I... Yeah, I think that would be my answer. Does that make sense to you? Yes, makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And I want to say, I mean, touching the heart of healing and hope, I think can happen anywhere. Writing a song, playing music, throwing ourselves into the things we love, taking a hike in the woods. Holy cow, what's more healing and hope-filled than being in the woods? That's what I think anyway. Yeah, cool. Well, let's go ahead. Maybe we could offer some space to the folks in the room. Go ahead, sir. Leo. I just want to say that was such an absolutely beautiful story. Very moving. And I want to thank you. We were very generous. That means a lot. Thank you, Leo. Go ahead, sir. Uh, I just <clears throat> I want to say, uh, along with everybody else that said it, thank you. Uh, I guess how this applies with me lately has been uh, lots of, of being afraid of not knowing what's going to happen after I finish my schooling or what uh, if it's as simple as exams um, that are coming up that I'm not confident. I'm trying just to constantly figure it out. Oh, if this happens, how am I going to respond? Or what happens if this? And it's yeah. just like it's been sometimes it's just like I can absolutely be with this. No problem. Other times it's just it's I'm trying to sleep and it's just I'm trying to go through everything that's in my head trying to prepare for things. Yeah, I can't. It's hard to be. It's hard to be with that and not know. But this was a uh, a very nice fresh perspective of things. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. So I know I remember that. I still feel that way sometimes too. Like it's like you've got this intellectual mousetrap going on your head. And if I take this job that means i can do this thing and i thought i'll move here but no wait what if i move here yeah. i know that's a really challenging time nick so i totally get it yeah i hope that things were helpful 
Go ahead. I just want to say about uh, who I really enjoy the talk. Um, I love the personal part of it. Yeah. I love that you put in these really um, recognizable uh, poems and, and plays that we need. And to use it to um, support what you're trying to say about. Yeah. And I love and some of the visuals are very beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm so glad you're here, hanging out. You had a big smile on your face. Sometimes when you give these talks, I should say sometimes when I give these talks, I get really anxious. So when there's somebody in the audience that has a big smile on their face, oh, good. Oh, thank you. So you supported me. You gave the talk together. What, Jenny? I'm also great. Like, like everybody has said, Mark, thank you so much, you know, just for sharing your tender heart with us. I really, I felt I was sitting here like, oh, my tender heart is hearing your tender heart. Oh, yeah. Also, um, that koan, uh, the way that you talked about it today, I mean, I've heard it before. We, we've talked, I think we talked about that koan in our, our koan class that's yeah. going on right now. And I, I hadn't really ever sat before with the part of, of, uh, for some reason, the when when he says, you know, I'm going to Bridge, I don't and I don't know. Yeah. Um, the way that you talked about that today, uh often my experience with cons or with not knowing, like Nick was talking about, is like, oh, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. I don't like the not knowing. Um but today with this, it felt like, oh, it's a relief. I yes. like it's coming to like accept and understand I don't know, and mm -hmm. like that's great. That's great, I don't know. It can feel like a relief, you know. Jenny, that is such a good point. Because I thought the same thing. And I was when I was just kind of hanging out with this Cohen, I realized maybe Dijon here, not knowing is the most intimate. I think he might be trying to be encouraging. He's trying to be encouraged to find out and say, yes, yes, you're on the right track. Keep going. It's good that you don't know. Good, good. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Go ahead in the back. Um, yeah, just kind of going off of that, I really connected that last line of not knowing the most intimate to your experience of being in that room with Moosey and kind of the darkness and yeah. silence and how that kind of like em emptiness and not knowing and uncertainty was in a sense kind of like also all embracing and comforting. And you kind of felt the presence of your grandparents and even that cat from the yeah, story. Yeah. Um, and how kind of not knowing or uncertainty, nothingness um, is sometimes the only thing that's large enough or expansive enough to include everything, exactly. to include like the presence of God. And Yes. What is your name? I'm Sam. Sam? That's a wonderful comment. And I'm just realizing, I forgot to reference a Pema Chodron quote, who I think is speaking so exactly to, to what you're saying, Sam. So Pema says in her book, living beautifully and uncertain, living beautifully with uncertainty and change. May we all learn that pain is not the end of the journey and neither is delight. We can hold them both, indeed hold it all at the same time remembering that everything in these quixotic, unpredictable, unsettled, and unsettling 
exhilarating and heart-stirring times is a doorway to awakening. That's pretty good. Thank you again, Sam. Yeah. Margaret, did you want to say something? Yeah, a little bit like you just talked about. Um, in 1972, my brothers were both sick. And it was a really hard time for my family. And uh, this line from this koan, uh, I'm on a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage chasing the wind, brought to mind that time for me. And it was, uh, my parents uh, owned a house in a small town near Boulder, Louisville, Colorado. And at, at that time, it's no longer true now. At that time, they had no housing between them and the Flatirons, which are the big hooks of rock near Boulder that are sort of the uh, opening to the mountains to come through the foothills, and then start getting into the mountains and Flatirons. And that year, there was this terrific wind <laughs> that was blowing off of the mountains. It was so bad, my parents had a big picture window. It was so bad that it blew out the window on the house. And I can still remember my brother. Oh my goodness. Uh, I cancer treatment. I'm holding up the spores for my dad to own in, you know, so we had protection from the swim. Um, and it was, you know, there would blow cars up every day. It was so strong, amazing wind. And then that year, both of my brothers passed away 10 months apart. It was a very difficult time for me. But ever since then, I've always heated the wind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It gets really windy. I'm like, gosh. <laughs> but, you know, with this line of thinking, you know, it, that, of course, was a monument here in my life. I just come back to Japan and my brothers passed away. My universe had changed. And, you know, I realized, you know, that was a lot of what life is. Yeah. is you know, you're just something like your, your daughter. I remember what your daughter was. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, whoa, that's a big change. You know, <laughs> you're going to be experiencing a whole different life now. Uh, and that, you know, that's a lot of what life is. You know, you like to think you have your path or whatever. My funniest thing I have. Yeah. And then this happened. And I, remember, I don't know what my path is. I don't know what life is all about. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually I got here. It took me a while. <laughs> but, you know, that's just so much, you know, not just engaging yeah. with good times, but all these things that arise that are like, oh, <laughs> this is what my life is going to be. Yeah. Well, that's well said, Margaret. Thank you. Um, I, why don't I just looking at the time? We do have a, a, a comment in the chat box from Tom. Tom, do you mind if I just read your comment? Maybe we could discuss it. Okay, let's see. This is Tom. I kind of wonder what to do, given that it feels like every job or career I've ever had, every office I am ever in, I don't feel like I belong or that anyone wants me there. Being fired a couple times, been fired a couple times. Two, and I just don't know what to do when it seems that it's coming or could be coming again. Just like simply, just simply don't feel like I fit or belong anywhere, no matter how nice I am, good I am, how much I care about the work, etc. I wonder if you have any advice or wisdom to share. Oh, Tom, that sounds like a really tough experience. I'm sorry that you're going through that. 
I mean, my first honest opinion, Tom, uh, I certainly share from my personal life, kind of struggling with anxiety and depression. You know, I've certainly shared times when I have felt very similarly to, to what I hear you saying, you know, like something everyone else is, um, you know, it's like we're all in a play together and everybody else got the script and I, I was left out. I have no idea what where I'm supposed to do or say. Everything feels uncomfortable and I, I, I've been there. I don't want to, I don't want to um, confuse identification with empathy just because I, I identify with you. I just want you to know I truly do empathize too. Um, I did probably most life-changing thing I've ever done. I'm just going to be very vulnerable with the group for a moment. I had to go to the hospital for depression one time. And when I was done, uh, while I was getting going through discharge, a part of my discharge planning it was to start dialectical behavioral therapy. And DBT is astounding. I think for reading your story and knowing how it felt like me, it might be something worth looking into. Essentially, DBT uh, is grounded in mindfulness. Marshall Linehan, who was the founder of DBT, was um, a, is a Buddhist practitioner. Um, and its three core components, other than mindfulness, are interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, and emotional regulation. And those three things, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, dealing with tough emotions that were coming and going. And um, the third, I just play it blanked on it. Uh, but regardless, that was so helpful, Tom. So I don't know if you've ever thought about maybe looking into DBT. It can be really helpful. And just in hearing your story, I, I connect with it. It might be something worth thinking about. Do you think that's helpful, Tom? Yes, thank you. Um, Cool. All right. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, Mark. Um, like everybody, it was a wonderful talk. And what really hit me, besides me and many people have said, is you really seem to convey the beauty of a life lived in the dark. Um, good times, bad times, all of it. And um, beauty is just the thing that, not such an abstract term, but it's the thing that. I really got from the top. Yeah. Thank you for thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Leslie. That's awesome. Thank you. All right. Why don't we uh, turn it over? Go ahead. So you got one post fields Paul McCartney song to listen which is with a little lust. I've never heard of it. The line is. The willow turns its back on climate weather. And so if you can do it, you can do it too. Oh. So every time you kept saying wind and beetles, that oh, like what do you know what album it's on? I think it's on its wings, sir. Okay. But it's uh, that's a good recommendation. recommendation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, the London, um, was that? Yeah, but that's like that's like a, like one of the best post Beatles songs ever. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. But it's like with a little luck, because like, you know, like we don't know where our pilgrimage ends. We don't know what our death or our aspiration is. So I love it. When we we don't have an outcome to get actually. We don't know what end story. So. That's a great comment. 